Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 12. If you need the Bible underneath your seat, please avail yourself to that Bible. Friend, if you don't own a Bible, we want you to take that Bible, make it your own, and read from it and learn about Jesus from that Bible. Uh, Matthew 12 is on page 817 of that Bible underneath your seats. How many of you have ever sat in the jury of a criminal trial? Anyone? Okay, got a few. Honestly, it's kind of a bucket list item for me. I don't know why. I'm strange. I would, I would love to do that. Um, for those of you who have sat in a jury, I imagine the judge gave you instructions, something to the effect of, in order to find the defendant guilty, you must believe that, that the prosecution's evidence has proved the case beyond what? Beyond all reasonable doubt. In other words, there's, there's no other reasonable explanation for the evidence presented. Being a, a jury member forces you to put your subjective feelings about the matter to the side, doesn't it? In fact, trial lawyers work hard in the selection process to weed out jurors who might have predetermined biases about the case one way or the other. The jury must deliver their verdict based on the evidence and on the evidence alone. Friends, as we've studied the Gospel of Matthew together, we've seen that, that Matthew presents evidence for a verdict beyond reasonable doubt. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah King who came to fulfill God's plan of salvation and to usher in God's redemptive kingdom. More truthfully, it's, it's Jesus himself who proved his identity through his words and works that were recorded by Matthew. No human had ever taught with the authority and grace and wisdom that Jesus taught with. No human of their own authority had ever performed mighty works like Jesus performed. He cleansed the leper. He, he gave sight to the blind and quieted the raging sea all with his mere word. He even pronounced that a, a lame man's sins were forgiven. And then to prove that he indeed had the power to do that, he healed the man's disability. In the part of the story we looked at last week in Matthew 12, 22 to 37, Jesus exercised his dominion over Satan by exorcising a demon from a man. Jesus told the Pharisees that his authority over the demonic realm and the power of the spirit was proof that the kingdom of God had broken into this world. He had bound Satan's hands and had come to plunder his house. But all this evidence doesn't just prove the Messiah case, does it? Jesus' teaching and his mighty works also prove what? That he's the son of God. He's not just a man. He's the God-man. Only God has the unlimited authority to reverse the effects of the curse and control creation with his voice and forgive sin and put Satan on a leash. That's what Jesus did. The religious leaders of Israel should have led the people in wide-scale repentance at what they had seen and heard. Jesus' presence ought to have caused them to bow their knees on the spot to him as the Lord and, and their God. And yet, despite this evidence, beyond all reasonable doubt, for who Jesus is, who he was, do you know what the Pharisees demanded? More. More evidence. Let's start reading in verse 38 of Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. 
But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands, Toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think the main idea of Matthew 12, 38 to 50, that I hope will be the main idea of this sermon, is this. Following Jesus requires humble faith, yet brings great reward. If you want to follow Jesus, you must come to him on on his terms, not your own. It requires humble faith. Yet what is the result? It brings a host of blessings. It brings great reward. Two points this morning from this text. Number one, from verses 38 to 45, the danger of demanding evidence but missing Jesus. The danger of demanding evidence but missing Jesus. Number two, from verses 46 to 50, the blessing of believing Jesus and being his family. The danger and the blessing. Friends, I pray that this morning that we might come to our Lord Jesus in humility and recognize him for who he is. And that in turn, we might cherish the blessing of being included in his family. Let's look at these first few verses. The danger of demanding evidence but missing Jesus. Look at verse 38. Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So, so they, they approach Jesus with this veneer of respect, right? They call him rabbi, teacher. But friends, they had no intention of learning from him, did they? Despite all the miracles that validated his claims and proved his identity, the religious leaders wanted more. They demanded more evidence for Jesus to prove the case. So in verse 39, Jesus responds by calling the scribes and Pharisees representatives of an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. Jesus indicts them with terms from Israel's history, right? He says they followed the footsteps of unbelieving Israel, whom Moses called wicked and crooked and twisted in their wilderness rebellion, whom the prophets later in Israel's history labeled as adulterous because of their covenant-breaking idolatry despite all that God had done to redeem and deliver his people and protect and provide for them, 
Throughout their history, they still demanded more. Give us what we want, or we'll go find another God. Jesus is saying that the generation of his day slotted right in with Israel's historic rebellion. Now, now why do you think that Jesus reacted so strongly against this request that he perform a sign to prove who he was? Well, friends, I think it's because this request was deeply hypocritical, right? Jesus had just given them a sign. He had just cast out the demon from the man who was blind and mute. Earlier in the chapter, at the beginning of chapter 12, I know we covered that like last fall, but remember, or last December, remember he healed the man with the withered hand, the deformed hand in the temple. The Pharisees were right on the scene to see it happen. The Pharisees were not coming to Jesus with genuine, honest openness to learn from him. They wanted to entrap, they wanted to trap him. They wanted to discredit him, to prove that he was an imposter and a blasphemer. Friends, there is certainly a type of longing for a display of Jesus' power that is godly, that that is humble, and even desperate for him to work. But that is not what's going on here. The hearts of the religious leaders are closed off to Jesus completely. In fact, they had just accused him, remember from last week, accused him of acting in the power of Satan himself. There's a sense in which Jesus always, always accommodates himself to our unbelief. His miracles were designed to elicit faith in him. The incarnation of the second person of the Trinity is proof that he condescended to us. He met us on our turf, so to speak so that we might trust in him and be saved from our sins. But on the other hand, friend, Jesus will not be reduced to nothing more than a powerful genie who does miracles on demand. When people make demands of of Jesus to assess him, to evaluate him, functionally, they want to be in the driver's seat. They want Jesus to do things on their terms. They want to evaluate Jesus as if they're his judge and not the other way around. Maybe this is actually your posture posture this morning, that you are seeking to be in the driver's seat, evaluating, assessing Jesus. The Pharisees denied clear evidence, and now they want more evidence. It was a facade for their entrenched rejection of him. Jesus knew that no miraculous sign would ever be enough to dissatisfy the demands of their rebellious hearts. So he responds in verse 39, But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I find this remarkable. Jesus gave them a sign after all, but it wasn't what they wanted. Jesus calls this sign the sign of Jonah. Now, even if you have very little exposure to the Christian scriptures, I imagine that you've heard of Jonah, right? The man who ran from God in rebellion, who was swallowed whole by a great fish in an act of judgment, right, by God, and yet God in mercy delivered him. After three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the fish vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Maybe you remember when I preached through Jonah back in January and February, Jonah talks about his experience in the belly of the sea monster as a death and resurrection. Do you remember that? He says things like, out of the, ba- out of the belly of Sheol, 
the realm of the dead, I cried. Jonah said, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, death and resurrection. So Jesus obviously recognizes this pattern. He does good hermeneutics, right? He sees in Jonah this God-ordained pattern of death, burial, and resurrection that he, the Messiah, the Son of God, would fulfill in a far more climactic and great way. Jonah was the type, right? Jesus is what we call the anti-type. Jonah set the pattern. Jesus is the great fulfillment of that pattern. Jonah's three three days and three nights in the heart of the seas. Jesus's three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's deliverance when the fish vomited him upon the dry land. Jesus's deliverance when the father raised him from the dead in the power of the spirit. By way of a quick aside, don't let this language of three days and three nights about Jesus's time in the tomb trip you up. If you've read the gospel accounts, you know that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. So he died on Friday and he was raised on Sunday. And clearly that is not three days and three nights in the kind of timing that in the, the language that we Westerners think of it. But in Jewish tradition, any part of a whole day could be referred to with the idiom, a day and a night. If you want just a clear example of this, read Esther 4, 16 to 5, 1. Esther 4, 16 to 5, 1, the exact same type of language is used. And it's very clear what we're talking about here. Jesus was not off in his prediction. He simply used the three days and three nights language to mirror Jonah. And in the Jewish timekeeping idiom, it fits perfectly with the gospel writer's narrative that he was crucified on Friday and raised on Sunday. So what is he saying? (laughs) What's the point of this cryptic sign? Jesus is saying, I will not stoop to give you a miracle on demand, but I will give you the greatest sign of all that I am the long-awaited Messiah King and the Son of God incarnate. There is coming a day when I will give my life as a sin-bearing sacrifice, and then I will be vindicated in the power of the Spirit. I will be raised from the dead to save all who will trust in me. You want definitive proof that I am who I say I am? I will die, and I will rise again to reconcile sinners to God. Can, Can you imagine the Pharisees' reaction I mean, like, I'm sure they were dumbfounded, incredulous, like, what? What in the world are you talking about? What type of a sign is this? And it's true, Jesus talked cryptically. He gave them a sign, yet shrouded it in a way that would only be clear after his resurrection. Why? Why did he do it like that? Why didn't he just say, no sign will be given to you except my death and resurrection? That would have been so much more clear. Well, I can't be certain, but I think Jesus took this tact to hide the sign from those who didn't want it while revealing it to those with eyes to see it. My father-in-law is a self-ascribed agnostic. We've shared the gospel with him on numerous occasions. And I always tell him, Sid, look at the evidence for the resurrection. The tomb is is empty. You want to believe in Christ? The tomb is empty. If Jesus is raised from the dead, it's game over. He is the Lord of heaven and earth to whom every knee should bow and tongue confess. 
And I would likewise echo the Apostle Paul and say, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we Christians are of all people most miserable. We are living a sham. We might as well live for the pleasures of this world now while we have the chance because death is the end. There's there's no hope, no future life to come if Jesus is not raised from the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul writes. After the resurrection, no one could deny that Jesus' tomb was empty. The the apostles tell us that, that Jesus appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses after his resurrection. Surely their testimony could have easily been discredited if it was false. Yet still the Jews persisted in unbelief. The possibility of a crucified, cursed Messiah was too much of a stumbling block. And so began what would develop over the centuries to be a cottage industry of conspiracy explanations of why Jesus was not in the tomb. Oh, Jesus didn't really die. He swooned upon the cross as if the Roman soldiers who took him down were idiots and couldn't take his pulse correctly. The disciples, well, you know what they did? They overpowered the trained Roman guards who were outside the tomb and they stole Jesus' body. And then every single one of them gave their lives as martyrs for that ruse. Not one of them at the 11th hour, under the pressure of death, said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. It was a hoax. We made it up. We made it up. No, the apostles staked their life on the reality that they had seen the risen Christ and they preached his gospel to the ends of the earth. Friends, what is your posture toward the Lord Jesus this morning? Have you nominated yourself as his evaluator in chief? Are you making demands of him or are you trusting him based on the evidence already given, which on this side of the cross includes his mighty resurrection from the dead? In a real sense, the Jews' demand for signs is kind of like a prototype of all types of things that we humans raise as a barrier to being open to God. I will happily become a Christian if God first proves himself to me. At an application lunch on Sunday, one sister told us of a a recent gospel conversation she had with an atheist friend. And the friend literally said in that conversation, if God will move this chair right now, then I will believe. How silly. But that's textbook, sign-demanding unbelief. Maybe you're here this morning and your posture toward Jesus is similar. Prove it, Jesus. I'll believe it when I see it. Friends, Jesus' answer to you is that he already has. The evidence is before you. Jesus, the king, died on the cross, was buried, and now his tomb is empty. The apostle Paul, reflecting clearly on these words from Jesus, wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, for Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For those who have eyes to see, the sign of Jonah, the the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ is the power and wisdom of God to save. Friend, do you believe this gospel? Or will you demand more evidence and miss the only one who can rescue you from your sins? Brothers and sisters, 
Those of you in Christ, it's not just unbelievers who can insult the Lord Jesus in this way, is it? We too, in more subtle ways, can put the Lord Jesus on trial. Lord, if you don't heal me from this sickness, I just don't know if I can ever trust you again. Lord, if you really love me, you'd give me a better marriage. I'll serve you, Jesus, but only if you really boost my career first. Beloved, what do you need than what the Lord has already shown? Don't succumb to a more Christianized version of the Pharisees' unbelief. Don't put God to the test. Remember that the barometer of God's love is not our circumstances. The barometer of God's love is the sign of Jonah, the cross, and the empty tomb. So that now, in light of the cross, all of our circumstances actually turn out for our eternal good and prove God's eternal love. Verses 41 to 42 show us more of why Jesus brought up Jonah. Not only to highlight the definitive sign for who he is, but to indict the Pharisees and the Jews for their lack of repentance. He does so by comparing their response with the response of pagan Gentiles in the Old Testament. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Friends, at the final judgment, it will not just be Jesus who testifies against his generation for their unbelief. Guess who will step forward as witnesses for the, for the prosecution? The people of ancient Nineveh and the queen of Sheba. Pagan Gentiles. Nineveh shockingly repented at the preaching of Jonah. The queen of Sheba came to ask her questions. She heard the wisdom of Solomon. She saw the glory of his kingdom and then she worshiped God because of it. If these Gentiles who were outside the covenant, strangers to the promises, had no prior knowledge of God, if they responded immediately to these, to these messages, the message of Jonah, the wisdom of Solomon, what excuse? What excuse did the Pharisees have? What excuse did the Jews have when one far greater than Jonah and Solomon was in their midst? They did not have a leg to stand on. Now, friends, do not miss the enormously high Christology in Jesus's words. Jesus, talking about himself, says something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon is here. Friends, Jesus is greater than Jonah because he not only proclaimed God's revelation, he is God's revelation, the very image of God. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Jesus is greater than Solomon because he is the perfect king who represents his people. He embodied God's wisdom flawlessly. He's the true and better prophet, the true and better king. But hold on to your seats, friends. Earlier in Matthew 12, after he healed the man on the Sabbath day, Jesus said he did so because something greater than the temple is here. If Jesus is greater than the temple, that means he supersedes the priesthood also. Friends, the reason that Jesus is so worthy of your worship today, the reason that he ought to be, that we ought to be marked by genuine repentance from sin and faith in him is that Christ's glory far surpasses all the Old Testament types 
and shadows and temporary mediators of God's relationship with humanity. All of them, like shadows giving way to the reality, yielded to the surpassing glory of the great fulfiller, our Lord Jesus Christ. The preeminent mediator had arrived. No wonder no one has an excuse to reject such a glorious Savior. According to verses 43 to 45, the stakes are just enormously high. I know these verses seem strange to our modern ears, like a kind of a creepy ghost story, right? But I think what Jesus is doing is continuing to press home the need for repentance in light of the final judgment. In these verses, Jesus further explains the danger of rejecting him, and he does so through this graphic illustration. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. So clearly it's a parable. It's an illustration about the sin and unbelief of this evil generation. I think Jesus is referring to the impotence of the exorcisms that the Pharisees performed. Right? We know from verse 27 that we looked at last week, back in his spat with the Pharisees, Jesus asked them by what power their sons cast out demons. So we know that the Pharisees performed exorcisms. But without genuine repentance toward God, their exorcisms did more harm than good to those who were quote-unquote delivered because the demon just went out and recruited a friend group of even worse demons right, and came back to repossess the person. It reminds me very much of the pack rat that took up a home, made a vacation home in the engine of our truck over the last two weeks. Uh, it did no good, friend, to clean out the debris that the, the pack rat brought into our truck, flowers and even tassels from the pillows in our backyard into our engine compartment, made his little comfortable vacation home. No, we, we didn't just need to clean the debris out. We needed to define the rat and destroy the rat. We needed to solve the actual issue. What's Jesus' point? Y'all pray for us. I hope we did that. <laughs> What's Jesus' point? The Pharisees and the Jewish people had already seen and heard far more than enough from Jesus for their house to be filled with true faith in him. Instead, they were content with their, their little nice, tidy lives of religious rule-keeping to please God. They thought their house was spick and span, but Jesus says it is vacant and it is vulnerable. Jesus is saying, if you continue to reject me, your final condition under God's judgment will be far worse than before I, I came. Friend, this is why I named this point the danger of demanding evidence, but missing Jesus. If you put Jesus on trial instead of embracing him by faith, that pride places you on a trajectory toward judgment. If you're here this morning and, and you actually have genuine questions that you want answered, oh friend, by all means, by all means, approach me after the service, approach one of our elders, approach one of our church members and, and ask those questions. Ask away. We'll set up a meeting. We would love to help you. But friend, the worst thing you could do, 
the worst thing you could do is to arrogantly demand more of the God who has already given you all you need to believe in his son. Number two, the blessing of believing Jesus and being his family. Look at verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So the scene has shifted, if not the location, at least the, the kind of the, 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 the focused on audience, right? Jesus is inside a house or, or building, teaching his disciples and those who had gathered to hear him. His family isn't inside listening to, to Jesus. They're, they're outside. Now, perhaps their distance is merely physical, Maybe it's just innocent, you know, they're, they're just physically outside the house. But I think the fact that they're outside, not inside, points to a spiritual distance from Jesus at this time. Of course, we know from other scriptures that, that Jesus' own brothers did not believe in, in him until what? After his resurrection from the dead. Maybe his family heard about Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees, and they've come to get their boy, so to speak, right? you gotta, you got to cut that out, man. Like, come home. We don't know. But I tell you this, I tell you this, everyone in that room would have expected Jesus to drop what he was doing and go outside to talk with his family. This is what a good Jew would have done. This is what a good rabbi would, would do, right? He'd put his, his family first. So what, what Jesus does next is scandalous. It is shocking. Verse 48, but he replied to the man who told him, who told him about his family, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my, my brother and sister and mother. Friends, we live in such a, an individual-centered culture in the U.S. I think it's easy to miss why what Jesus did was so culturally scandalous. We think, oh, what's the big deal, man? He's, he's a grown adult. He's a grown man. He can do what he wants. If he doesn't want to talk to his family, he shouldn't have to. But friends, the Middle East was not, the ancient Middle East, and still really the, the current Middle East, it, it's not an individual-centered culture. It is a family-centered culture. You had no separate identity or status or standing than your family had. It was also a shame-honor culture, right? If you were honored, your family was honored. If you were shamed, so was your family. And the inverse was true too. If you shamed your family, you brought shame upon yourself. So, so what could possibly have overcome Jesus to risk dishonoring his family? Friends, I think Jesus is teaching something new and profound about how things would work from this point on in redemptive history. He was redefining the composition of the people of God. He was redefining the composition of the people of God. Under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, entrance into the people of God was primarily by what? By bloodline, right? You were either a descendant of Abraham or you weren't. Okay, oh sure, there, there were ways that Gentiles could be, become part of the covenant community, but far and away, Inclusion within the people of God happened by birth. Just, just think of the visible sign of the old covenant community. What was it? Circumcision. It marked off Israel from the Gentiles. 
But, but now that Jesus has come to fulfill the old covenant and establish the new covenant, no longer will inclusion within the people of God be by physical birth. It will be by spiritual birth. No longer is entrance into the covenant community by one's lineage, but by one's faith in Christ. Which is why, by the way, little aside, the sign of the new covenant is believer's baptism, not circumcision or even infant baptism, right? It's the sign of true faith in Christ. So, so Jesus had already put the wheels of this project in motion, the wheels of this new family of God in motion earlier in his ministry when he chose the twelve. That was significant, right? At the very beginning, Jesus kind of tipped us off to the fact that he was establishing this new people of God. Just like there were 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus chose 12 disciples. They represented this new covenant community that Jesus was establishing. Now in Matthew 12, Jesus expands from the 12 to all his disciples that followed him by faith. Men and women, boys and girls. These, Jesus says, are his mother and his brother and his sisters. And friends, how will we know? How will we know how to find, how to spot this reimagined, redefined people of God? Will they wear a certain type of clothing? Will they only eat certain types of foods? Jesus says in verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. You say, John, that almost sounds like legalism. That to become part of the family of Jesus, you have to obey the commands of God. Is Jesus teaching works salvation? Well, read the verse carefully. Jesus doesn't say, whoever does the will of my father in heaven becomes my brother, sister, and mother. He says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, friends, obedience to God, obeying his will, isn't the grounds of this family relationship with Jesus. It's the evidence of it. Obeying God is not the root of the relationship, but the fruit of the relationship. Faith in Christ is the root. The transforming work of the Spirit is the root. And obedience to God by the power of the Spirit is the fruit. If you invert the order, it's deadly heresy. Salvation cannot be achieved. It can only be received by faith in Christ. This is just simply Jesus' way, friends, of saying what Jeremiah the prophet predicted hundreds of years before in Jeremiah 31. Listen to these words. God said he would establish this new and better covenant with his people. The Lord said, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. The old covenant community was mixed with unbelievers and believers. So within the covenant community, they would say to each other, know the Lord. Jesus is saying within this new covenant community, they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Friends, this is the new family of God. This is the new family of God. They will all do the will of the Father. By the way, another stunning Christological implication from Jesus. Those who do the will of the Father are his family. 
He orients obedience to God toward relationship with himself. Only God or a maniac or a lunatic could make that type of claim. In our remaining time this morning, friends, I just want to make two additional subpoints, two additional points of application thinking about this section of the text. Number one, this new family of God transcends the importance of your earthly family. The new family of God that Jesus establishes here, it transcends the importance of your earthly family. Notice I didn't say this new family replaces your earthly family. That's not what is happening. Jesus is not denigrating his mother and brothers. He's not abandoning them. Later in Matthew, he'll teach on the importance of caring for one's aging parents, contra the Pharisees, right? As he hung in agony on the cross, what did Jesus do? He made sure his mother was taken care of. So he's not replacing his blood family, but he is relevantizing the importance of them. It's a matter, a matter of priority. Jesus is saying that, that, that far deeper and, and more meaningful than, than bonds forged by blood are bonds forged by the work of the Spirit and one's faith in Christ. I think that those of you who have come to faith in Jesus out of a non-Christian family, you likely see this truth more clearly than those of us who grew up in a Christian home. Because you know this from experience, right? Maybe you've had your family turn their back on you, push you to the margins of family life, treat you harshly, all because you're a believer in Jesus. You know firsthand the incalculable blessing of believing in Jesus and being his family. You may have lost your blood family, but you have gained a faith family. And no doubt that you've found that you have now far more in common, far more in common with your brothers and sisters in the family of God than you do with your blood family who don't know Jesus. I see head shaking. We know this. Do you see what Jesus is doing in this moment? This reframing of the family of God, it's a sneak preview of the local church. The church isn't established quite yet in this point in history, but it would be soon. And so it's not at all surprising that when Paul and the apostles talk about membership in the local church, they do so in terms of membership in the family, membership in the household of God. We are family, brothers and sisters united together in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, and I say this in the fullest Jesus meaning of the word, if our Lord Jesus understood that, that this new family of God, it transcended his own blood family in eternal importance, surely, surely we as his followers ought to likewise calibrate our approach to family relationships. Each one of us has a responsibility to love our blood family in appropriate ways, no doubt. Again, Jesus is not encouraging you to, to discount this high calling in your life to be a dad or a mom or a sibling, a son, a daughter. However, he is saying that your blood family's importance pales in comparison to the importance of the family of God. So what does this mean practically? It means, friend, that you ought to orient your life, whether you're single or whether you're married with a family, you ought to orient your life around the family of God. That means if, if you're not a member of a local expression of the family of God, the local church, you ought to be. You ought to be. 
It doesn't have to be RGC, but you need to belong to a local church and practice meaningful membership within it. How else can we tell if you're a Christian than if you're living in committed love to the people of God, with the people of God, within the church of Jesus Christ? How can we tell you're part of the family unless you're at the dinner table and participating actively in the life of the family? Beloved, when this conviction that the family of God transcends your earthly family, it impacts everything. It reshapes everything. Here are a few examples of, I think, the effect it should have. Parents, if you understand this priority, you'll make our Sunday gatherings an immovable pillar in your family's schedule. You'll be willing to make the the culturally weird and relationally hard choice that your children may not be able to participate in Sunday sports games or friend activities and whatnot. You'll not easily miss a gathering of your church family for an event in the life of your blood family. You'll do everything you can to prioritize things biblically. If you understand this priority, you'll start thinking about how things like family vacations and weekend trips can be planned around the Sunday gathering. Now, of course, sometimes missing Sundays are inevitable, unavoidable. We're not heavy-handed about that here at RGC. We're not going to hunt you down. But friends, a mature understanding of the Christian life means that at least, at least, you make the Lord's Day gathering part of your evaluation, part of your equation when you make family plans. If you understand this priority, you'll embrace the fact that sometimes your family might have to go without certain things that other non-Christians enjoy so that you can give financially more substantively for your church family's gospel witness to burn more brightly and move forward more strongly. If you understand this priority, you'll make hospitality to your church family a huge blood family, earthly family priority, so that your earthly family experiences the joy of ministering to the family of God. If you understand this priority, you'll be praying for your church family. You'll make that one of your highest priorities in this life. Beloved, I could go on. We could go on. The question is really, do you share Jesus' conviction that the family of God transcends your earthly family? Do you share Jesus' conviction? Remember, friends, that, that you love your family best. You love your earthly family best when you do not love them first. You love them best by loving Christ first in orienting your family's life around Jesus's family. Number two, second application. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his family. That's amazing. Jesus is not ashamed. Do you see the beautiful irony in this story? Jesus' blood family had no reason to be ashamed of him, and yet they were. Jesus has every reason to be ashamed of his disciples. He has every reason to be ashamed, ashamed of us, and yet he's not. He sweeps his hand over us, as it were, and joyfully declares, Behold, here are my brothers and my mother. In light of Queen Elizabeth II's death this week, there are a number of stories floating around the internet about her. I found one on Twitter from a pastor in Lexington, Kentucky. He's a real person. Okay, I've heard him preach before. So real guy, real story. He wrote this. 
I once had the honor of touring the UK Parliament with a man who knew its history better than anyone. I asked for the craziest story he could share, and he did not disappoint. Every legislative session begins with a visit from the Queen, and it's a very regal tradition. She wears her crown and robe and processes down a hallway lined with the Queen's guards who literally strike the stone walls with their sword to make sparks fly as she walks by. The hallway ends with at the House of Lords where the Queen enters to take her seat on the throne and essentially commissions the legislators to enact the will of the people. Several years ago, they were forced to break tradition a bit to accommodate the queen in her older age. There's a grand staircase leading to the hallway, and it just became too much for her to climb. So they started using the elevator to get her up. Well, the first year they did this, a mistake was made. The lift operator accidentally pushed the button for the wrong floor. Rather than the entrance to, to parliament, he pressed the button for the maintenance floor. The lift goes up. The doors open, and Alice, from the cleaning crew, with her head down, pushes her cleaning cart into the elevator as she has done countless times. Only this time, she pinned the Queen of England against the wall of the small lift. The doors close behind her. Alice is stuck in the lift with the Queen and her guard, and she lets out an expletive, not fitting the presence of royalty. Then, in awkward silence, no one knows what to do. The silence was broken by the queen's uncontrollable laughter and the, then the most remarkable invitation. Rather than opening the doors to let Alice off, the queen asked the lift operator to take them down to the proper floor. The doors open and to everyone's shock out walks Her Majesty the Queen and Alice the maintenance worker. Then the queen and her regalia, along with Alice in her maintenance uniform, process side by side down the royal hallway. But it gets, it gets even better. Once a year for the rest of Alice's life, she was invited to Buckingham Palace for high tea with her newfound friend, Queen Elizabeth. What a picture of gospel grace. That we nobodies, we treasonous, sinful Wretches are included in the family of the high king of heaven and earth. And not only that, he's not put off or ashamed to include us. He's invited us to his table where we commune with him along with all of his family. Listen to these words from Hebrews 2 as we close this morning. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Friends, following Jesus requires humble faith, but it brings great reward. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to be humbled by your love and live in light of your will. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.